Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. Today we'll be covering Chapter 11 of The Gift of Tongues, pages 111 to 116. The title of the chapter is Singing in Tongues. The reader portion of the program is about 15 minutes long, and then we'll get into the commentary portion. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Thank you for listening. Singing in Tongues, Chapter 11 of Gift of Tongues, pages 111 to 116. My soul delighteth in the song of the heart. Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. No one can deny the beauty and soul satisfaction that comes from good music. The Lord surely has a special interest in the gift and the influence of this precious expression. Yet as strange as singing in an unknown tongue may seem, it has often occurred and can be reasonably understood. God's purposes and means are not always known. Yet he may choose ways, which are not man's ways, to fulfill his purposes. The experience of singing in an unknown tongue, when actuated by the gift and power of God, must surely be a marvelous manifestation not easily forgotten. In his journal Elder Woodruff writes of a visit to his home of Anne Whitney and Eliza R. Snow, I read over several of the old sermons of Joseph that were not recorded anywhere except in my journal. We passed a pleasant evening together, and before they left, they sang in tongues in the pure language which Adam and Eve spoke in the Garden of Eden. This gift was obtained in the Curtain Temple through a promise of the prophet Joseph Smith. He told Sister Whitney if she would rise upon her feet she should have the pure language. She did so, and immediately began to sing in tongues. It was nearer to heavenly music than anything I ever heard. This beautiful gift Sister Whitney retained throughout her lifetime, and upon appropriate occasions exercised it to the edification and joy of the saints. Others wrote about this gift of singing in tongues that was given to Anne Whitney. She was among the first members of the church to receive the gift of tongues, which she always exercised in singing. The prophet said that the language was the pure Adamic tongue, the same that was used in the Garden of Eden, and he promised that if she kept the faith, the gift would never leave her. It never did, and many who heard her sing never forgot the sweet and holy influence that accompanied her exercise of this heavenly gift. The last time she sang in tongues was on the day she was 81 years old. 
it was at the home of sister Emmeline B. Wells, the latter having arranged a party in honor of Mother Whitney's birthday. At the meeting held in the Kirtland Temple, Sister Whitney sang in tongues in Palipi, Pratt interpreted, the result being a beautiful hymn descriptive of the different dispensations from Adam to the present age. After I had been deprived the privilege of attending public worship for about eight months, I at length was permitted to go. It seemed to me the heavens were smiling upon me. One afternoon I attended a prayer meeting. The sisters laid their hands upon my head and blessed me in a strange language. It was a prophetic song. Mrs. E.B. Whitney was interpreter. She sang that I should have held and go to the valleys of the mountains and there meet my companion and be joyful. I was then fully expecting him to come to that place before I could, with my family, undertake such a journey. I still desired to hold that belief, but was admonished by those who heard the prophecy to accept the contrary and strive to be reconciled. At the General Conference of the British Mission held in Manchester, May the 5th, 1842, the gift of singing in tongues was given to Lorenzo Snow for the testimony of the restored gospel. At the conclusion of a spirited address, President Snow was blessed with the gift of tongues expressed in the singing of a beautiful sacred hymn. This miraculous manifestation of the Spirit thrilled the large congregation and was a striking testimony of the restoration of the ancient faith with its gifts and blessings following the baptized believers. The power and influence of this gift has caused a deep and impressive feeling upon all who have heard it. Perhaps no other gift or medium of expressing the Holy Spirit could have so great an effect as this manifestation on special occasions. Fallen Winter, 1839 Soon there was a small branch organized in the neighborhood where I resided and presently he ordained me an elder and at his request the saints there in our neighborhood chose myself to preside over them, which office and appointment I received very reluctantly for I felt my weakness. It was so great I felt it was almost more than I could bear, but the Lord strengthened me. The Holy Ghost helped me so that the burden was lightened and the task made easier. Now I realized and saw the Spirit of God poured out upon the people. The Reformation which I had so anxiously prayed for and received a testimony that I should soon see in my neighborhood, for that was the kind of Reformation that the Lord would get up that will count, the Gospel in its purity preached by man or men having authority people believing their testimony of new yielding obedience by going down into the waters and being baptized for the remission of their sins and their receiving the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, which we did certainly receive, for some received the gift of tongues and some prophesied, for I your humble servant did receive the gift of tongues which I covet very much, particularly the gift to sing in tongues which I did receive in a remarkable manner. We many times sang in our congregations for the Lord did pour out his spirit abundantly upon me not only in singing in tongues for we have seen strong men sit and tremble like poppy leaves to the great edification and comforting of the saints not only that but we have seen the sick healed in preaching the gospel, 
expounding the scriptures, in bearing our testimony and in prophesying as well as the healing of the sick and casting out devils, and also of visions and dreams, and seeing also all which blessings we testify in the name, and in the fear of God was poured out upon and enjoyed by the Latter-day Saints or Mormons, in that neighborhood which proves to us without a shadow of doubt the truth of God and his power attending his gospel and his servants on the earth. Joseph Lee Robinson enjoyed this gift for many years, and recorded this unusual incident of singing in tongues later in his journal. We rolled out from Pisgah my sick day we crossed Grand River. I crawled off my wagon, and saw with others Brother Balding, which I saw at Kirtland, and at the house of Oliver Granger's I sang in tongues and Brother Balding interpreted it. I said to him, I am sick with ague and fever, and I want you to lay hands on me and heal me. I sat in my chair. He blessed me and sure enough, I had no more of that. Elder Benjamin Brown had the gifts of tongues given to him, but he refused to speak in them. The gift left him and was given to another who spoke and then sang in tongues. One Sunday morning, while opening the meeting with prayer, the gifts of tongues came upon me, but thinking of Paul's words, that it is sometimes wisdom not to speak in tongues, unless one is present who can interpret, and forgetting that Asiste possessing the gift of interpretation was present, I quenched the spirit, and it left me. Immediately after, another brother spoke in tongues, the interpretation of which was that the Lord knew we were anxious to learn of the affairs of our brethren in misery, and that if we would humble ourselves before him, and ask, he would reveal unto us the desires of our hearts. Misery was some thousand miles from Portland. We accordingly bowed again in supplication before the Lord, and, after rising from our knees and reseating ourselves, the same brother broke out singing in tongues in a low, mournful strain. But judge our feeling, when the interpretation was given, and was found to be some thirteen or fourteen verses of poetry, descriptive of affairs in misery, and the murder of our brethren there, telling us that just at that time and dash, our brethren lay bleeding on the ground, with their wives and children weeping around. We had so often proven the truth of similar communications, that we felt as assured of the truth of this shocking news as though our eyes actually behold the horrid sight. Our hearts were filled with sorrow. In a fortnight afterward we received a letter from John P. Green, a faithful elder of the church in Missouri, who was, at the time he managed to write, secreted in the woods. The letter detailed and confirmed all the events previously revealed in tongues, proving that on a very day we had been informed of the transactions occurring a thousand miles off, the bleeding corpses of our brethren lay stretched on the ground after the slaughter. It was either at or about this time, that the massacre at Horns Mill took place. Another purpose for this unusual gift was to reveal incidents in history. One example pertained to the Nephites, a hymn, concerning the travels, toils, troubles, and tribulations of the Nephites, was sung in tongues by Elder W.W. W. Phelps, 
interpreted by elder Emin White. On one occasion in Kirtland, a heavenly choir sang while Zina Huntington received the interpretation. The Huntingtons embraced the fullness of the gospel at Watertown, New York, and Zina D. Huntington, when only 15 years old, was baptized by the patriarch Hiram Smith, August 1, 1835, and soon after went to Kirtland with her father's family. In this year she received the gift of tongues. On one occasion in the Kirtland Temple, she heard a whole invisible choir of angels singing, till the house seemed filled with numberless voices. At Kirtland she received the gift of interpretation. What rapture must thrill the souls of those who hear the angels sing? The language and the music of heaven must be beyond expression. The choirs of heaven represent the ultimate in beauty and harmony of the gifts of singing in tongues, which few mortals have been privileged to experience. Perhaps we should look with great anticipation to the time when all shall know me, who remain, even from the least unto the great east, and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice, and with the voice together sing this new song. New Song Chapter 12 Interpretation of Tongues Singing in Tongues <clears throat> Chapter 11 of the Gift of Tongues Pages 111 to 116 My soul delighteth in the song of the heart Yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. Doctrine and Covenants, section 25, verse 12. No one can deny the beauty and soul satisfaction that comes from good music. The Lord surely has a special interest in the gift and influence of this precious expression. Yet as strange as singing in an unknown tongue may seem, it has often occurred and can be reasonably understood. God's purposes and means are not always known, yet he may choose ways which are not man's ways to fulfill his purposes. The experience of singing in an unknown tongue when actuated by the gift and power of God must surely be a marvelous manifestation, not easily forgotten. In his journal, Elder Woodruff writes of a visit to his home of Anne Whitney and Eliza R. Snow. I read over several of the old sermons of Joseph that were not recorded anywhere except in my journal. We passed a pleasant evening together, and before they left, they sang in tongues in the pure language which Adam and Eve spoke in the Garden of Eden. This gift was obtained in the Kirtland Temple through a promise of the Prophet Joseph Smith. He told Sister Whitney if she would rise upon her feet, she should have the pure language. She did so and immediately began to sing in tongues. 
It was nearer to the heavenly music than anything I'd ever heard. This beautiful gift Sister Whitney retained throughout her lifetime and upon appropriate occasions exercised it to the edification and joy of the saints. And quote Life of Wilfred Woodruff by Cowie, Matthew Cowie, page 355. Others wrote about this gift of singing in tongues that was given to Anne Whitney, quote, She was among the first members of the church to receive the gift of tongues, which she always exercised in singing. The prophet said that the language was the pure Adamic tongue and the same that was used in the Garden of Eden. And he promised that if she kept the faith, the gift would never leave her. It never did. And many who heard her sing never forgot the sweet and holy influence that accompanied her exercise of this heavenly gift. The last time she sang in tongues was on the day she was 81 years old. It was at the home of Sister Emmeline B. Wells, and later having arranged a party in honor of Mother Whitney's birthday at a meeting held in the Kirtland Temple, Sister Whitney sang in tongues and Parley P. Pratt interpreted. The result was being a beautiful hymn descriptive of the different dispensations from Adam to the present age. And quote LBS Biographical Encyclopedia by Jensen, Volume 3, page 563. After I had been deprived the privilege of attending public worship for about eight months, at length I was permitted to go. It seemed to me the heavens were smiling upon me. One afternoon I attended a prayer meeting. The sister laid their hands upon my head and blessed me in a strange strange language. It was a prophetic song Miss Emily B. Whitney, or E. B. Whitney, was interpreter. She sang that I should have health and go to the valleys of the mountains and there meet my companion and be joyful. I was then fully expecting him to come to that place before I could with my family <clears throat> undertake such a journey. I still desired to hold that belief, but was admonished by those who heard the prophecy to accept the contrary and strive to be reconciled. Journal of Louisa B. Pratt from Heartthrobs of the West, Volume 8, page 243. At the General Conference of the British Mission held in Manchester, uh, it's Manchester, England, May 5th, 1842, the gift of singing in tongues was given to Lorenzo Snow for the testimony of the restored gospel. Um, before I go through this quote, I used to have a friend whose name was Nathan, and he came to the United States 
and had some kind of job, I think something to do with like on the job training kind of thing, or I'm not even sure, uh, what do they call it, where you work for free, but you're doing it for experience. Anyway, but he was a uh, roommate of my best friend when I was younger, and we never called him Nathan. His name to us was always Manchester, because that's where he was from. Anyway, I don't know, it just reminded me of him, so I thought I would talk about it a little bit. I think it's interesting also that in the last quote, the sisters were laying hands on someone's head, which uh, is perfectly acceptable. Whether the modern church knows it or not, women have the opportunity to receive matriarchal priesthood, which is part of the Melchizedek priesthood. And in order for a single sister to come into the presence of the father, she cannot rely upon her husband's priesthood, but must have her own. And that is the matriarchal priesthood. Also, married women do not fall under the purview of their husband's priesthood when coming into the presence of the father. You must have your own priesthood to come into the presence of the father and that is the matriarchal priesthood. So the church may not have that at this time, for whatever reason, but my wife does. I received a revelation several years ago to give her matriarchal priesthood. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm just going to tell you. In 1995... God took me up in the spirit and brought me to the Salt Lake Temple while Jesus did. He brought me into the middle tower on the eastern side, which is the highest room in the temple, in the temple. And I went into that place and I heard the voice of God telling me that I would be the last prophet before the return of Jesus Christ. What was really strange about the whole instance is that at the time I was very anti-Mormon and I actually attended a Baptist church. So that was 1995. In 1996, um, after writing God a letter um, asking him to heal me and to show me the truth, and I would serve him for the rest of my life. I met Elder King and Elder Bowman in Layton, Utah. And when I prayed about Joseph Smith after they presented the first discussion to me, the Holy Spirit came on me like fire, like hot oil that flowed through my whole soul, and I was completely healed. And I knew without a doubt that Joseph Smith was a true prophet and that the Book of Mormon was true scripture. It was in 1996, 1997, that I got my patriarchal blessing where I was told in it that I have been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow the gift of eternal life. The state, a stake patriarch and a stake president 
told me that it meant that I had had my calling and election made sure, which was strange to me because how does that even work? Like, I convert in 96, in 97, I have my patriarchal, I mean, my patriarchal blessing basically says that I have had my calling and election made sure. Anyway, so I asked God about that, and I went on a mission. I got my endowments out in the Salt Lake Temple in 97, and I went on a mission in 97. And after my, during that time and after my mission, um, I was a truck driver. And during that mission and after my mission, I kept asking God a bunch of questions because I was trying to understand my newfound faith. And I wanted to understand the patriarchal blessing and what it meant to have your calling and election made sure and how I could be sealed up into eternal life and all that. And God told me during those years of asking, it's not because of who you are in this life, it's because of who you were before you came here. But he never told me what he meant. Well... As I was praying in 2003, in the spring of 2003, oh, I guess that would have been, wow, 19 years ago, uh, right around this time of year, um, I was taken up in the flesh, and I was taken to um, a meadow by a creek next to some mountains in a canyon. And God told me to wash off in the creek, so I washed my hands, and I washed my face, and I wet my hair down, and I could feel, and it was so cool, because, like, I've had out-of-body experiences where God takes me up in the, in the spirit, but this was different, because I could feel the breeze. I could feel the coldness of the water. I could smell the sweet smell of the meadow. And later on, even the pine trees, I could smell them. So anyway, but God told me after I washed off in this creek to follow this path and go up this mountain. And I hiked for a long ways. And at the top of this mountain, there was a temple, which was a small temple. And... Um, I went up to the doors and it said, enter and that you may obtain your calling and election. And uh, there was a plaque that said, house of the Lord. Kind of like the one on the Salt Lake Temple. Anyway, when I walked into the foyer, um, it was very simple. But there was uh, a chandelier with stones that glowed like the stones that the brother of Jared asked Jesus Christ to touch or that were in Noah's Ark that lit up the inside of Noah's Ark. Um, there was a vase, vase with white roses which gave off their own light. Everything in that place gave off its own light. It was, it was amazing, beautiful. Anyway, so I went to the end of the hallway and I went through a veil And when I went through that veil, I went into this room, and the power of God was so incredibly powerful in that room. Just love times infinity. And I saw a light at the other end of the room, 
And as I came into the glory, I saw a man standing in the light. And uh, he was about three feet off the ground. And I fell on my face and I immediately recognized him. I knew that this was my father in heaven, the father of Jesus Christ. And I fell on my face and he told me to get up. And he opened his arms to me and I went to him and I embraced him and I felt his flesh. And I was so happy to be home and in his presence. And he told me to kneel before him. And I asked him what he was doing. And he said, I'm sealing you up to myself that you may be sealed up unto eternal life. So I knelt before him and he put his hands on my head and light began to emanate out of me, which was a little bit, well, it was completely unexpected and completely distracting. So I have Heavenly Father's heads on head, hands on my head, and I've got my arms folded in front of me as I'm kneeling before him, and I'm like looking at my arms because light is literally not shining on me, but coming out of me. And I did not hear what the Father was saying in this blessing where he was sealing me to himself. When I stood up, Jesus Christ was there, and the Father instructed me to go with Jesus and that he would answer some questions that he knew that I had. So we went to the other end of the room, and there was uh, some stone benches there, and I sat down, and I thought about what it was that I wanted to ask Jesus, and I asked, he said that I could have three questions, and uh, he was very patient with me because I had questions within questions, just about my life and about all the stuff that I was supposed to do, and he told me that I would be returning to the earth and that I would be a servant in his hands. He also told me that all of the bad things that have happened to me in, well, he said all of the things that have happened to me in my life. And like, I just, I think of all the bad things that happened to me when I was a child and a teenager, and even as an adult. He said all those things happened to me for his wise purpose, and he allowed them to happen to me that I might be molded into the servant that he wants me to be. So anyway, he told me I could return at any time I wanted, uh, and then, but I would be returning to the earth. Now, there is a powerful blessing that most of us don't, don't even recognize, and that is the power of the veil to help us to forget what it's like to be in the presence of the Father and the Son. Because if we had a knowledge of what it's like to be with them, like this world becomes so much harder to endure. But it's for His wise purpose that we go through the things that we go through. And there's a reason for it all. 
there's a good reason for it all. We are here to gain experience and to grow and to gain a higher level of resurrection. And so the veil helps us not to have the added burden of knowing what it is like to be in the presence of the Father and the Son in that to know what it's like to be in their presence makes this world so much harder to endure. And for many years, all I wanted to do was go be with them. But I knew that I would not be able to remain with them. And I knew that if I was in their presence continuously, as I wanted to be, that it makes it so much harder to come back into this mortal probation. And so I have not returned. But from time to time, I am taken up in the Spirit, and God has an audience with me. Whenever he needs to talk to me or show me something, he wants to help me learn something. Um, And he's given me many written revelations and visions and dreams. So anyway, um, I did not know what the Father said for many years. And I continued to learn and to grow and um, in 2012 I learned some interesting information about Wilfred Woodruff which completely just blew me apart. Um, Well, he was a keynote speaker at the Bohemian Club, which is part of the Bohemian Grove, which is like part of the Congress of the Illuminati, like they're bad, bad people. And I was like, why in the world would Wilfred Woodruff be a keynote speaker at at, at this kind of club? And it just threw me through a loop. And also at the same time I learned that, I learned that the next day he was, he died. Uh, a lot of people believe he was poisoned to death. So I learned that information, and then I used my college experience to go and research, and I found three news articles about it. One from uh, San Francisco, which is where Wilfred Woodruff died, one from the Salt Lake Tribune, and one from a newspaper in New York City about it, all about it. So anyway... Um, between that and uh, my new mother-in-law telling the state president about how I believe in the principles of polygamy and the Adam God doctrine and all of that sort of stuff, even though I wasn't teaching it openly, like she just had to knock me out. So anyway, the uh, the state president. Um, he asked me about it, and I was honest with him. I'd never met him before. And uh, he asked me if I sustained Thomas Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator. Well, years before that, I had attended three regional conferences within the period of like two months. And at each of these regional conferences... I sat very close to the front or behind the speakers um, by where the choir was. 
anyway, um, and I had the opportunity to meet Thomas Monson. Now, it's interesting because I used to, I dated his uh, great niece for a time. And then I actually married President Hinckley's great niece. And we used to go to church with President Hinckley in the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. And I loved President Hinckley, but I always had a problem with President Monson because I felt like he was emotionally manipulating me with his talks. And I was not edified by them. So I asked God, is Thomas S. Monson really a prophet, seer, and revelator? And God told me, no, he's a steward over the church until he whose right it is to rule and reign comes. And so I said, okay, well, I can accept that. And I, so I, I told the state president, I said, look, I sustain him as president of the church, as a steward over the church, but I can't sustain him as a prophet, seer, and revelator, especially when God has told me he's not. And the fact that he doesn't have the fruits of being a prophet, seer, and revelator, and I have not had a witness that he is, I will not sustain him as a prophet, seer, and revelator, but I will sustain him as president of the church. Um, The conversation also got into my own spiritual testimonies and witnesses, and I told him about my experience with the Father and the Son in 1995 and also in 2003. And I told him how I wrote President Hinckley a huge letter in 2004 uh, uh, with the diagrams of the room that I went in and all of the stuff that happened, very detailed. And when I sent that in on Monday to the church headquarters, On Thursday, my state president got a telephone call and he was asked to contact me, which he did. It was uh, President Duncan in West Valley, Utah. I was in the Hawarden Park Ward. Anyway, that was a singles ward mistake. Anyway, so um, President Duncan told me that somebody from church headquarters wanted to meet me and asked me if I would be to sacrament meeting, um, you know, the upcoming Sunday 30 minutes early, and that the individual that was going to come uh, interview me would find me. So anyway, I went in early with my uh, fiancé, my ex-wife, <laughs> um, President Hinckley's niece. And uh, the spirit gets really strong as we're sitting there waiting for this individual to show up. And I heard the foyer doors open and I looked to my left over my shoulder and in comes Elton Perry. And he comes over to me and he starts talking to me. And we talked for a while. He interviewed me, and it's kind of funny because Rebecca did not have her glasses on, and she did not know who I was talking to because I think she left her glasses in the car. Anyway, but so El Tom Perry is talking to me, and people are starting to come in for sacrament meeting, 
and they're seeing El Palm Perry talking to me, you know. And, um, he slaps me on the back and with this big smile on his face, and he says, well, God's the one that chooses his prophets, because we sure don't. And then he walked away, and my, my fiancé at the time, Rebecca, she says, well, who was that? And I said, that was El Palm Perry. And she was like, what? No way, you know. Anyway, he went up and, and uh, he talked a little bit to the congregation. And then during the, um, well, he talked about the gift and the calling of God's prophets and just different, different things. Anyway, but during the, the ending music, he got up and walked out. And then he, uh, right as he was walking out, he says, go to the stake president's office after the meeting. He has something for you. And so I said, okay, <laughs> you know. Anyway, after the meeting, everything ends, and everybody runs over to me. What is El Tom Perry talking to you? Like, what was he saying? And I was like, he was just talking to me about some personal things. You know, I didn't want to tell everybody about my experiences. Um, I used to keep it very private. Only close friends and family knew. But until God told me to be bold with my witness, and now I just, I'm still kind of private about it. I don't tell everybody, but I do if you listen to my program. You find out about these things. But like, I don't go sharing, sharing this with everyone. Uh, just around my life and whatnot. People who have known me for years never know anything about these things about me unless they listen to my programs where I was told to be bold with my witness. So anyway, um, I went to the state president's office and we talked for a little while and then he gave me this big, thick manila envelope with um, that letter that I wrote. They kept the original of it. They made copies of everything and then they stamped it with two archive numbers and office of the first presidency and email. So I guess they emailed it somewhere. Anyway, so there's two different archive numbers on it, and I have a copy, and I have the original. So I never thought I'd get the copy back. Anyway, so um, I don't know. It was just a very interesting experience, and I didn't know what he meant by, well, God's the one that chooses his prophets, because we sure don't. But anyway, so um, so years and years and years go by. And I told that stake president, you know, like, talk to El Tom Perry. And at that time, he was still alive. And I personally believe he was murdered. But that's a completely different story. Anyway, but um, I asked it. I said, please tell, uh, like, ask uh, President Duncan knows these things, or El Tom Perry, you know, like they know these things. And uh, the that state president said that I was a bald-faced liar and he was going to excommunicate me. So anyway, um, I wanted to get back for my trial because I wanted to stand there in front of all the council, you know, and tell them my story. And defend myself but but it happened that as at the time I wasn't over the red truck driver and I was trying to get home and I couldn't get home in time and I called the state secretary like 
I think I was like on a Wednesday or so. I don't remember. Anyway, um, I, I was like, hey, if we could do this, like, after this date, like, I can be there. I just, I can't get home on time. And, like, I parked my truck in Hartford, Connecticut, and then I had to drive up to upstate New York and go home, and then I had to drive out to um, Montpelier, I think it was, Vermont, which was where the headquarters, the state president's offices were. So anyway, but um, he said it didn't matter what the, um, the state president said, it didn't matter what I said, that I was going to be excommunicated. And uh, that really made me very upset. And I was crying to God and asking him why this was happening to me. When I haven't done anything wrong. And he came to me and he commanded me to kneel down before him and ask him who I am. And God showed me who I am, that I am the witness of the Father and the Son. Not long after that, uh, my wife and I drove out to Utah so that she could meet my family. And Heavenly Father told me to go to specific church sites and rededicate those sites. And the last one that I went to was the lot in Independence, Missouri for the temple where the temple was never built. And he told me to go to the four corners of the lot and to rededicate it. And so I did what I was told. And then after I finished dedicating the last lot, he said, now seal it up unto me. And I thought to myself, how, how am I supposed to... I don't have sealing keys, you know. Anyway, um, but he told me to do it, and so I raised both arms to the square, and I did as he commanded me. I sealed it up unto him. And um, my wife and I were talking about that the other day, like two days ago on the radio program. I think it was like two or three days ago. And I, I felt like I was being lifted up off the ground. It was a very unique experience. I'd never experienced that before. And that gave me a lot of like, what? You know, I didn't understand. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. Anyway, but um, I started asking God, what did you say when you put your hands on my head in 2003? And I kept asking him that, and an individual that I know who had a very, very powerful witness that I was, that I am a prophet, um, as we were discussing it, he was taken up in a vision, and he saw the Father lay his hands on my head, and he heard the words that the Father spoke and the blessing that the Father gave me when he sold me up into himself. Part of that blessing was that I received the fullness of the priesthood with all of the keys of the church, the kingdom, 
and the priesthood. So when Heavenly Father told me to use the authority he had given me to give my wife matriarchal priesthood, that's how I had the authority to give her matriarchal priesthood. So that priesthood is restored on the earth at this time. And she has the power of the matriarchal priesthood to lay hands on people's heads, to heal them, to bless them, um, to do all that, that the matriarchal priesthood has. And when they talk about in this book women laying their hands on people's heads, I don't know if they understood that that they had matriarchal priesthood or what. I'm not exactly sure, but I believe that Joseph Smith did restore matriarchal priesthood and that over time, these things were blotted out and forgotten. And I don't know how to prove that, but I know that matriarchal priesthood is upon the earth and that my wife does have it. So anyway, all of that all those tangents, going into detail and all that stuff. Um, I'm sorry to tell you that the leaders of the church are not what they proclaim to be. And now I'm going to speak directly to the leaders of the church. When I bring things up about the temple endowment and how Satan says, if you do not live up to every covenant you've made this day, you'll be in my power. And I point out that there are 16, almost 17 million members of the church and not one united order, but we all covenant to live the law of consecration, which is the foundation for united orders. And instead of repenting and going back to the instructions given to us by the prophet Joseph Smith, or in other words, the instructions that Jesus gave the prophet Joseph Smith for the saints, and we do not have united orders, and we do not do the other things that are part of the restored gospel for the redemption of Zion, we are in a cursed and fallen state and under great condemnation. And part of the lesson in the endowment is if you don't do the things that you covenant to, you'll be in the power of Satan. You can, in, you can remove that part of the endowment, but those principles are still the same. And, and for the listening audience, that's exactly what they did. Instead of correcting their actions, they just removed it from the endowment. And they've done other things like this as well, including uh, in regional conferences telling people not to listen to my podcast. You know, and telling everybody, oh, he's just a self-proclaimed prophet. 
Well, maybe that's true. Maybe when Heavenly Father told me to be bold with my witness, and I'm bold with my witness, maybe that is self-proclaiming my witness. But it is the witness that the Father has commanded me to share with you. And rejecting me and my witness is rejecting the one who sent me. In July of 2013, the Father commanded me to raise my arms to the square and to sever the ordinances and priesthood of all the holy people. Which I did. I asked him why, and he said, if they will not accept you as my witness, I will not accept them. When it talks about the man like unto Moses who had not yet been rejected by his people, Moroni talked about that. To Joseph Smith. In Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23, Moroni calls that man a Christ or a Messiah, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people. Jesus Christ had already been rejected by his people. He was not speaking of Jesus, but of Messiah ben Joseph. And my people reject me. I am Messiah ben Joseph. I am the man like unto Moses. And in Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23, it says, All they who will not hear the words of that prophet, and hear in that context is to Shema, which means listen and obey. <clears throat> it says, All they who will not Shema to that prophet, that they will be destroyed from among the people. When the Father, when I asked the Father why he wanted me to do this, severing the ordinances and the priesthood of all the holy people on the earth, he told me if they will not accept you as my witness, I will not accept them. And basically he did a hard reset in order to set the house of God in order properly. So all of you out there that think you have priesthood, I'm sorry, but you don't. Even, even my friends, even all my fundamentalist friends, even all of my in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint friends, you don't have priesthood. A month after I did this ordinance, my aunt was reading in Daniel chapter 12 where she saw that Daniel saw in the last days that there would be a man clothed in linen who would raise his arm or his hands in the air and he would scatter the power of all the holy people. Raising his hands in the air is after the manner of the Melchizedek priesthood, which did happen. Scattering or severing the power is to cut off the priesthood of all the holy people. And who are the holy people? They are those who have the priesthood restored to them. And if you have not received priesthood from me after being baptized under my hand, you do not have the priesthood. 
and all of your sailings and all of your weddings and all of your baptisms and all of your ordinances are null and void. It's part of the setting in order which Jesus Christ talked about in DNC section 85. Where Jesus said, I would send one mighty and strong to set the house of God in order, which is an implication that the house of God would get out of order. And it has. And I am the one mighty and strong who was sent by the Father himself to start the work and ministry of the Father before the second coming. Who would set the house of God in order. When I was sealed up into the Father, I was giving the sealing keys and part of setting the house of God in order. And one of the reasons why nobody else can do this work because you can do all the right things and still not be set in order. But when I was filled up to the Father and given the sealing authority, I was given the authority to seal individuals to myself through the law of adoption so that they can be filled up into the Father, thus turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers to the sealing ordinances. So, anyway, I don't, I don't like to talk about that too much because um, people at my work now, they know that I do a radio program and I just hope that they're not interested in the gift of tongues or religion or anything else. Like, they tease me a lot. <laughs> in fact, one day um, last week... Um, my friend, I'm not going to say names because I don't even want you to know what company I work for because I want to keep this separate. I mean, I love working for the company I work for and I love my job. And I've been fired before because people find out my claims and my testimony and they don't like it, so they get rid of me, you know, because obviously I must be completely delusional. Even though I have over 3 million miles, I've been driving for 25 or something, I don't know. Well, since 1995 is when I got my CDL. And in 94, I started driving um, potato trucks for Larson's Farms in Hamer, Idaho. And then I can, even, I can go into my history of driving before that. You know, but I have been driving all these years and I've only been involved in one accident where I got rear-ended. You know, um, I have a very healthy family, a wonderful, beautiful wife that loves me to death and I love her to death and all of my kids, you know, that we all love each other and we have a healthy family. Like, we have a 10-acre farm. You know, my wife is a professional uh, teacher, you know, I'm a professional. I've been, I was a diesel mechanic and then I became a truck driver. You know, and yeah, I've had all of these very powerful, real spiritual experiences. I'm not crazy. I don't have schizophrenia. 
People who have schizophrenia don't drive semi-trucks. They would wreck them. God has never taken me out of my body or any of that fun stuff while I'm driving my truck. You know? My testimony is true. Satan did not embrace me in the glory and power of God that I experienced in 2003. He did not deceive me all of these times that I have had these experiences. He tries to tell me that I'm not who I proclaim to be because he wants me to stop. But I can't stop. Because my Father in Heaven and your Father in Heaven desire a remnant to come out of this people who will be obedient to all that he has commanded through his son, Jesus Christ. So that Zion can be redeemed, which must happen. These people must come out of this people before Adam and Andiamas can happen. Because it's only when there is a people who will live all that I have commanded that they shall look up and Zion shall come down out of heaven with the city of Enoch and the church of the firstborn. There might be 16, 17 million members of the church, but they are not being obedient to the instructions as given through the prophet Joseph Smith. And these leaders who are false administrators, Babylonian businessmen, will teach you smooth things but never bring you to the truth of Zion's redemption or obedience the instructions of God because the church is in full apostasy and the fruits of things like singing in tongues or the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy and revelation and dreams and visions it is dead it's dead you hear and you read about all these things that happen in church history and they don't happen anymore there's a reason for that in order to repent you must awaken to an awful sense of your own situation and reject those who say all is well in Zion because if everything was well in Zion the gift of tongues would be prevalent in the church and it's not the gift of dreams would be all over 
when Moroni told Joseph Smith that, that the pro- prophecy of Joel was about to take place, wherein old men would dream dreams, young men would see visions, like all of these things that were supposed to happen. Mike, if they're not happening in your church, that means your church is dead. And when Joseph Smith said that the eagles would gather to the carcass in the last days in Matthew chapter 24, he was talking about the restored church that had gone into apostasy that was dead. And when your leaders like Russell M. Nelson, and you go check this out, Mormonism Life did a big old two-hour long episode all about this. When your leader, Russell M. Nelson, lies about the horrible airplane crash that he was almost in and how the, the engine blew up and fuel was burning on the wing and the fuselage and they, they had to do a crash landing in a farmer's field and how he was calm and all the people around him were screaming and how wonderful he is and how, like, nobody else had faith, you know, whatever. And then you go back into the NTSB records and you find out that that specific airplane, which was flying from the Salt Lake Airport to to St. George, had some issues. There was some muttering in, in one of the engines. And as a precaution, it had twin engines. One of the engines was having a little bit of a problem. So they landed the airplane on the runway at the Delta Municipal Airport. The NTSB had to do it. They had to do a report on it because it was an incident. They sent another airplane. SkyWest sent another airplane out to pick these people up and take them on to their destination. If something so horrible as an engine exploding open fire on the wing and on the fuselage, that would have all been in the report. And none of it was. Because Russell M. Nelson has no problem lying to you, which shows his fruit. There's other things, too. Other things that these leaders have, have, you know, stories they make up To fill you full of lies. To give you false hope. Their fruits are not the fruits of prophets, seers, and revelators of God. And they might say, I love you. They're emotionally manipulative. And the church is a cult full of abuse. And for those of you who can't see it, I feel so, so sorry for you. Because in order to repent, and in order to be part of Zion's redemption and the exodus, you have to awaken to the awful sense of your situation and realize that the leaders of the church are filling you full of lies. And that even though you have had spiritual testimony and witness and confirmation of the Holy Ghost that Joseph Smith is a true prophet, he was. Book of Mormon's true. 
things that these men teach, there's many things that are true. And the Spirit testifies to it. But just because the Spirit testifies to truth, it doesn't mean that the person delivering it is a prophet, seer, and revelator. I have gone throughout churches all over North America, and I have felt the Holy Spirit in many congregations of all different sects of Christendom. The Spirit will testify to truth. It doesn't matter who teaches the truth. But it doesn't mean that that man or woman is of God. It just means the message is true. Joseph Smith was a true prophet. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Redeemer. But the LDS Church, as prophesied, is out of order. And in Doctrine and Covenants section 124, Jesus said if they were not obedient, they would be rejected as a church with their dead. And they were. And the authority claims from Brigham Young to Russell and Nelson are invalid because Joseph Smith was the only one who was the Lord's anointed before I was anointed under the hand of the Father in 2003. So I've got to end this part of the recording. I'll have to get back into it later with uh, uh, with uh, the reading here because the clips can only be so long. We're only 33% through the reading right now. But... uh. We'll start at uh, the General Conference of the British Mission. And, uh, you know, thank you for listening to this part. Um, Before, if we have any phone calls during the recorded portion, um, I'll pull you into the screening room off the air, and you can ask me your questions. And then if you'd like to go live, on the air live, um, we can do that after the recording of the uh, of the reading part of the program is done. So thank you for listening. At the general conference of the British Mission held in Manchester, April I'm sorry, May fifth, eighteen forty two. The gift of singing in tongues was given to Lorenzo Snow for the testimony of the restored gospel. Quote, at the conclusion of the spirited address, President Snow was blessed with the gift of tongues expressed in the singing of a beautiful sacred hymn. This miraculous manifestation of the spirit thrilled the large congregation and was a striking testimony of the restoration of the ancient faith with its gifts and blessings following the baptized believers. Life of Lorenzo Snow by Thomas C. Romney, page 59. The power and influence of this gift has caused a deep and impressive feeling upon all who have heard it. Perhaps no other gift or medium of expressing the Holy Spirit could have so great an effect as this manifestation on the special occasion. Fall and winter, 
1839, soon there was a small branch organized in the neighborhood where I resided, and presently he ordained me an elder, and at his request the saints there in our neighborhood chose myself to preside over them, which office and appointment I received very reluctantly, for I felt my weakness. It was so great I felt it was almost more than I could bear, but the Lord strengthened me, the Holy Ghost helped me so that the burden was lightened and the task made easier. Now I realized and I saw the Spirit of God poured out upon the people. The re Reformation, which I had so anxiously prayed for and received a testimony that I should soon see in my neighborhood, for that was the kind of Reformation that the Lord would get up that will count. The Gospel in its Purity preached by man or men having authority, people believing their testimony and yielding obedience by going down into the waters and being baptized for the remission of their sins and receiving of the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, which we did certainly receive. For some received the gift of tongues, and some prophesied. For I, your humble servant did receive the gift of tongues, which I conveyed very, or covet very much, particularly the gift of singing in tongues, which I did receive in remarkable manner. We many times sang in our congregation, for the Lord did pour out his Spirit abundantly upon me, not only in singing in tongues, for we have seen strong men sit and tremble like poppy leaves, to the great edification and comforting of the saints, not only that we should that not only that, but we've seen the sick killed in preaching the gospel, expanding the scriptures, and bearing our testimony and in prophesying as well as the healing of the sick and casting out devils and also a vision of visions and dreams and seeing also all which blessings we testify in the name of and the fear of God was poured out upon and enjoyed by the Latter-day Saints or Mormons in that neighborhood which proves, that, proves to us without a shadow of a doubt the truth of God and his power attending his gospel and his servants on the earth. And quote Joseph Lee Robinson Journal, pages 4 and 5. Joseph Lee Robinson enjoyed this gift for many for many years and recorded this unusual incident of singing in tongues later in his journal quote we rolled out from Pisaga by sick day we crossed Grand River I crawled off my wagon and saw with other others brother Balding which I saw at Kirtland and at the house of Oliver Granger I sang in tongues and brother Balding interpreted it I said to him, I am sick with og and fever, and I want you to lay hands on me and heal me. I sat in, my, or in a chair. He blessed me, and sure enough, I had no more of that. And quote Joseph Lee Robinson Journal, page 28. Elder Benjamin Brown had the gift of tongues given to him, but he refused to speak in them. The gift left him and was given to another who spoke and then sang in tongues. One Sunday morning while opening the meeting with prayer, the gift of tongues came upon me, but thinking of, brother, 
thinking of Paul's words that it is sometimes wisdom not to speak in tongues unless one is present who can interpret and forgetting that a sister possessing the gift of interpretations was present, I quenched the spirit and it left me. Immediately after, another brother spoke in tongues and the interpretation of which was that the Lord knew we were anxious to learn of the affairs of our brethren in Missouri and that if we would humble ourselves before him and ask, he would reveal unto us the desires of our hearts. Missouri was some thousands of miles from Portland. We according, accordingly bowed again in supplication before the Lord, and after rising from our knees and receding ourselves, the same brother broke out singing in tongues, in a low, mournful strain. But judge our feelings, our feeling when the interpretation was given and was found to be some 13 or 14 verses of poetry descriptive of the affairs in Missouri and the murder of our brethren there, telling us that just at that time, our brethren lay bleeding on the ground with their wives and children weeping around. We had so often proved the truth of similar communications that we felt it assured of the truth of this shocking news as though our eyes actually beheld the horrid sight. Our hearts were filled with sorrow, and a fortnight afterwards we received a letter from John P. Green, a faithful member or elder of the church in Missouri who was at that time who was at the time he man- managed to write secreted in the woods, the letter detailed and confirmed all the events previously revealed in tongues, proving that on, a, on the very day we had been informed of the transaction of a, transactions occurring a thousand miles off, the bleeding corpses of our brethren lay stretched on the ground. After the slaughter, it was either of or about this time that the massacre Hans Mill took place. Gem, Gems for the Young Folks, pages 67 and 68. Another purpose of this unusual gift was to reveal incidents in history. One example pertained to the Nephites, quote, A hymn concerning the travels, toils, troubles, and tribulations of the Nephites was sung in tongues by Elder W.W. Phelps, interpreted by Elder Lyman Wright. White, um, 1833, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 1, page 409. And we're at 88% of the reading for today. The guest call-in number is 917-889-889. 8827. That's 917-889-8827. And also there is a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon, which is live Monday through, uh, well, Monday through Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And then uh, I usually try to put some, a podcast out on Friday, but I don't go live on Friday. So I've got other things to do on Fridays. So. Anyway, uh, but I do try to put five episodes out per week, so. 
On one occasion in Kirtland, a heavenly choir sang while Ziny Huntington received the interpretation. The Huntingtons embraced the fullness of the gospel at Watertown, New York, and Zena D. Huntington, when only 15 years old, was baptized by the patriarch Hiram Smith, August 1, 1835, and soon after went to Kirtland with her father's family. And this year she received the gift of tongues. On one occasion in the Kirtland Temple, she heard a whole visible choir of angels singing till the house seemed filled with the numberless numberless voices. At Kirtland, she received the gift of interpretation. LDS Biography Encyclopedia by Jensen, Volume 1, page 697. That's kind of cool that she... So we live really close to uh, Huntington, Utah, um, here in Emory County, right in Castle Country, in the middle of the state, basically. And um, not that that matters, I just think it's interesting that, you know, this town was named after her and after others of the Huntington people. But... um, I don't know, it's really cool that she heard a number, uh, like a numberless concourse of angels singing hymns. And it kind of goes along with what happened when I asked God if Joseph Smith was a true prophet. As I knelt there, the Holy Spirit entered into me like hot oil, which filled my whole soul. And I heard an innumerable concourse of angels singing praises to God. It was a very overwhelming, amazing experience. And I was completely healed of my drug addictions at the time. And um, because of that that amazing spiritual miracle and, and witness, I can't reject Joseph Smith. I don't believe he was a false or a fallen prophet. I believe he was a true prophet all the way up until the end. And that, um, but that there's a lot of lies about him in church history and uh, whitewashing by the Brighamite church. Um, and then just a lot of slander and libel towards him. And, uh, but I, I know by the same spirit that Jesus is my savior and that God lives and I cannot deny that even though I was an anti-Mormon Baptist Southern Baptist before my conversion even though I have studied church history and anti-Mormon literature to see, because I wanted to understand how to, how to, I didn't want to get blindsided for one, but I also wanted to understand how people were attacking the prophet so I could try to understand how to have an answer for their accusations, you know, and there's been things I've struggled with. But God has given me a revelation on how to overcome, you know, the things that I struggled with. And he's taught me, you know. 
And so, um, understanding the scriptures and knowing that Joseph was a true prophet and he was sent by our Father in heaven and our Savior, I can't reject that. And I'll talk about the principles of the gospel and the, the you know, prophecies of the latter days. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to be part of a church which changes the gospel. I was just reading today how Joseph F. Smith put a plaque on all of the temples at that time which told people that the endowment, or the, uh, the not the endowment, the, uh, the garment was received by God and should not be changed or altered. It should be white and it should, uh, you know, have sleeves down to the wrist. And no one will be admitted into the temple unless they have the correct garment if they're going in to do a downer. Because people were trying to alter the garment at that time. And after he died, Heber J. Grant ordered that all of those plaques be taken down and burned. Because he was going to do it his way without revelation. And, and Heber J. Grant actually stated in his lifetime, near the end of his life, that the heavens were as brass to him. As brass to him. And that he had not received any revelation from God. I don't know if he was trying to repent for all the crap that he did without revelation, but it's those kind of changes and all of the other changes in LDS history from from the Restoration until modern times that I have a problem with. If Jesus says that we'll be rejected as a church with our dead in DNC section 124 if we are not obedient to the things that he says, and we don't do what he says, and we make excuses as to why we're not going to do what he has told us to do, I see no other reason, uh, no other reason to stay in the church. Because the church is in apostasy and the leaders of the church are prideful and they are not going to change. There have been several things over the years that I have made a big deal about and they just change the endowment. Or they change the gospel or they say this, that or the other to try to like walk away from what I'm telling them. You know, and they don't want to accept me because I'm the Lord's anointed. I actually knelt before the Father, and he did anoint me with his power and the fullness of the priesthood in 2003. You know, but Russell M. Nelson wants to say he's the Lord's anointed. Everybody should love and obey him. And I'm just like, no, you need to love and obey God and be obedient to what he has told you to do, not what some man like Heber J. Grant, who changes things, tells you to do. Joseph F. Smith should have excommunicated Heber J. Grant and Charles Penrose right off the bat. Charles Penrose is the one that wrote the manifesto. He admitted to it. It wasn't a revelation from God. It was a revelation from Charles Penrose, who proclaimed to be a prophet, seer, and revelator. He was one of the apostles. And uh, John Taylor would not sign it. Wilfred Woodruff eventually signed it. 
but these are wolves in sheep's clothing who proclaim to be something that they're not. Anyway, continuing on, we are at 94%. Once again, the guest calling number is 917-889-8827. What rapture must thrill the souls of those who hear the angels sing? The language and the music of heaven must be beyond expression. The choirs of heaven represent the ultimate in beauty and harmony of the gift of singing in tongues, which a few mortals have been privileged to experience. Perhaps we should look with great anticipation to the time when all shall know me, who remain even from the least unto the greatest, and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice, and with the voice together sing this new song. Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 98. So, when we come back on Monday, we're going to be talking about the interpretation of tongues, which is uh, the title of chapter 12, which is on page 117. So, anyway, like I said, uh, if we have any callers, now would be the time to call in. Of course, you could have called in the whole time. I just would have taken you into the screening room if you had any questions or comments that you wanted to ask me privately. But uh, if you want to come on the program live, now would be the time to do it. So let me just see here. Um, I had an individual. He asks me all of these questions. And... Like, you know, it, he's asking me on my Fundamentally Mormon podcast and radio show page on Facebook. And uh, he asked me, um, he asked me what is Kolob. Um, I heard about it before. And that was last night at 8.40 p. No, it wasn't at 8.40 Yeah, it was last night at like 8.40 at night. And then he like puts a question mark later on, like he's waiting for me to tell him, okay, I'm glad you're asking me these questions, but you have Google. I mean, you're, you are messaging me on an, uh, on an app, on a computer. So you can get on the computer and you can look up what co-op is. I, why should I waste my time? First of all, I ran like hard last night. I like the only time I stopped was like a couple of minutes every round at the beginning of the load to get loaded, and then at the end of the uh, of load to pull my gates and dump my coal on the ground or in the grizz, and then I ran. And I ran hard last night, and I didn't leave um, the yard until like 6 a.m. this morning. And then I, you know, I came home and I did some of this recording. And then um, I went to sleep around 8 a.m. And then uh, I woke up around 2.30 and had to deal with uh, the title company and trying to get the, late, the rate locked in because it keeps going up. And every time it goes up, I, I'm paying another $100 a month in my house payment. You know, and so, and then I was able to, like start getting this recording and right now it's it's actually 4:21 p.m. 
And now that I'm done with the recording, I'll upload this and then I'll go get ready for work and I'll go to work. So if you're asking me questions in Messenger that you can call in and ask or that you can find yourself, then you should do that. Because I don't really have time to spend all of this extra time trying to talk about all of these different things that you can look up on your uh, on your own or that you can call in and ask me about on the radio show. I mean, I make myself available Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. until we're finished, which is usually 7.30 or 8 p.m. And if nobody calls in and I'm done with the reading, then I'm just going to go. You know, you have the opportunity for eight hours a week to call and ask me questions. All of you do. I've made myself available for all of you. All seven billion of you. Or what, what is it? We're up to seven billion people on the earth now. You know, or 17 million members of the church. If there really are almost 17 million members of the church. And I don't believe those numbers, by the way. I believe they're inflated. I believe it's about a third of that. But uh, whatever. I am making myself available for eight hours a week to take your questions and your comments. And I don't mind your questions about things that you cannot easily look up. But to ask me what Kolob is, and you've heard of that before, the fact that you know how to spell Kolob tells me that you know what Kolob is. And if you don't know what Kolob is, Google it. Look up a Wikipedia. Go to the church app, lds.org. Uh, Look it up. Look to see in, in the book of Abraham, I think it's Abraham, where it talks about Kolob. I believe Kolob is the planet closest to the star where God lives. I think that's it. I might be getting it wrong, but, um, you know, it's been a little while since I've looked that up. You know, maybe I'm getting it a little wrong, but you can look it up too. I don't have time to do a whole lot of anything. I'm trying to work 60 to 70 hours a week, do uh, 10 hours, like just from what you see, 10 hours of, you know, of radio a week, basically, eight hours of live radio and two hours of podcast, but it takes it takes a lot longer than that every day and every, you know, it takes a lot longer that, than that every day to prepare these things. And then I've got a farm, a family, kids, a wife, and other things that I have to do, getting ready for work. You know, I've got all this other stuff, and so, like, if you're going to waste my time asking me a question about what Kolob is, when you can take the time yourself to look it up, that kind of irritates me. And I have, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for all the questions you have asked, but you should be asking me these questions and listening for my response on these radio programs because I I don't my son built me a computer I have not sat down since he brought it home in December and ever used it 
I don't have time. I use uh, an iPad and an iPhone and two Android devices to do these programs. And um, and I I have to. There's all these people that are always trying to get me to give them money, you know, or to pray for them, and I don't mind praying for them. But uh, you know, tons of scammers and people asking me questions that they can go look up themselves. And not only that, I've got like five or six pages on Facebook that I have to run. People messaging me there, um, and like groups on Facebook that I'm trying to admin, you know, and trying to go through all of the stuff that people are trying to post. You know, one of my groups has over 4,000 people in it and people post. There was like 14,000 actions on the group in the last 60 days. That's comments and posts and likes, all of that. I, I I think I looked at the statistics today and it was like 14,000 actions in the last 60 days and I'm trying to manage that and I don't trust individuals because when I've had other admins and mods before they don't do their job or they end up you know doing other things that I'm trying to like keep out of the group you know like I had one guy Scott followed Jesus I banned him from the from uh, my main Facebook page uh, group because he was posting things that kept on getting reported. Part of the rules of the group is you're not allowed to attack people individually in the group or out of the group, living or dead, that we are talking about LDS, last days, prophecy, and gospel discussions. But he was posting all these things about... Uh, you know, how wrong whatever Sharon Eubanks is or Russell M. Nelson is or, you know, and like, hey, there's a place for that. It's not in my group. And then um, I had Facebook knock my group because of something that he posted, you know, and so I got, um, I got dings on my group and the quality of my group because of things he was posting and then now everybody's freaking out about how anti-Mormon this group is because I allowed him and a couple of others to post some things and the, the whole idea of the group is to talk about gospel discussions and prophecies of the latter days that's it talk about true principles and then if there's an incorrect principle, show it in scripture and show how it's incorrect that's being taught and then, and then teach the true principle. Like, for instance, one of the things right now is in the, um, I think it's in Galatians, I can't remember. Um, it says that deacons need to be uh, the husband of one wife. And they're they're having a big old debate on like, did Joseph Smith ordain twelve year old boys to be deacons? You know, no, he did not. No, he did not. They were grown men that were ordained to be deacons, and that's in the Bible. And he did not correct that in the Joseph Smith translation. And the LDS Church wants you to believe that they never finished 
the, the Old Testament or the New Testament, but I have records that show otherwise, where in the times and seasons, Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith separately and together talked about finishing the work of the translation. They finished it. The LDS Church does not want you to know what it says. So they only give you a little bit here and a little bit there. They could give you it all, but they don't want to because they're hiding things because they whitewash history to go along with their narrative. But Joseph Smith did not correct that. So when Joseph Smith tells us in April of 1844 that if they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine of Covenants, you have to set them down as imposters. It was one of the last instructions that Joseph Smith gave because he knew that there would be ravening wolves who would take over the church, like Heber J. Grant and others, and he wanted you to know that you needed to be learned, you know, you needed to educate yourself, and that if these people contradict Scripture... Like, for instance, giving 12-year-old boys who are not married uh, conferral of the priesthood and ordination to the office of deacon, well, guess what? That is a contradiction in scriptures. The instructions were that deacons should be the husband of one wife. Now, some individuals will make up excuses because and I understand why. I completely understand why. Because you've placed your faith and trust in a church and in leaders of a church to teach you and to lead you and to guide you. You've placed your faith and trust in a church which has filled you to your families. And if all of that's a lie, then I mean, I wonder why all of these ex-Mormons are so upset. Do you really wonder why they're so upset when they find out, like, all of this stuff and they find out the church is lying? You know, and they've placed trust and faith in the church. They've wasted time on missions, um, you know, going to temple, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars over a lifetime, even millions of dollars in tithing to an organization that is lying to them. Yeah, I have complete sympathy for those individuals who are so angry that they've been duped because they find out the leaders of the church have been lying. But um, just because they were lying doesn't mean that the Spirit didn't testify to you that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And Joseph Smith gave you a key shortly before his death, and uh, you know he gave he he published it in the Times and Seasons, April. Of 1844, he died in June of 1844. If they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, you set them down as imposters. Twelve-year-old little boys should not be deacons in a church. Deacons are full-grown men. Or they contradict former revelation, which even the angels of God are forbidden to do. But these individuals who want to lie to you and whitewash and do all the things, 
they will do whatever it takes to become popular with the world. Paul told Timothy to be friends with the world is to be in enmity or in opposition with God. He wants you to come out of the world and stop being Babylonian whores. And what do I mean by that? We are meant to be the disciples of God. We are meant to be a peculiar people. We are meant to be the bride of Christ. And when we go whoring ourselves six days a week after Babylon the Great, when we've been commanded over and over and over again in Scripture and Revelation to come out of Babylon, that is basically our husband pleading with us to leave our lover because we are cheating on him. As his wife, he has given us instructions on how to act and how to live. And if we love him, we will be obedient to his instructions. Part of that is having united orders, which is founded in the law of consecration. You have 17 million members of the church and not one united order. Now, Russell M. Nelson will run around and he'll talk. He'll probably just ignore this. But, you know, we don't need to worry about that anymore. We don't need to worry about that anymore. They have billions of dollars. Um, I just read a report that said that the LDS Church is like the fifth largest landowner, private landowner in the United States. They have enough wealth to go after the federal government so that we can have united orders. Or just do it and then, you know, back up what you're doing with your lawyers at McConkie and whatever, you know, the the church's law offices are. You know, but, and I made this point over and over and over again for many years, and then they just took this out of the endowment. But in the endowment, which, okay, by the way, before I say it, if God gave the endowment a certain way, what right do you have to change it? If he wanted it to be the way it is now, he would have given it that way to begin with. But I digress. In the endowment, there is a principle which is taught when Satan comes out and he says and he looks at us and the congregation, whether you're doing the live, and personally, I love the live more than I love these stupid videos that they put out. You know, I really love the live. That's the live endowment. But anyway, so... Um, Satan comes out and he looks at the congregation that's there receiving their endowments and he says, every covenant you've made this day, if you do not live up to every covenant you've made this day, you'll be in my power. Well, how can you live up to the covenant of consecration if there's no united orders? And isn't it that the church is causing you to be in the power of Satan because they are making excuses so that you do not obey the covenants that you've made with God? I mean, you can try to justify it all you want, but you will stand before the judgment bar of God alone, and you will not be able to say, well, they told me to do it. You can either stand with truth, 
or you can pay the consequences of cowardice. When you stand before the judgment bar of God, you're not going to have an excuse for your disobedience and for being a whore of Babylon when you should have been the bride of Christ. Because we are not living up to the covenants we have made. Because we do not listen to the instructions which God has given and we make excuses as to why we as a people will not live plural celestial marriage. Why the law of adoption is gone. Why the true gathering of Israel is, is, is no longer taught. Are they, they've, they've made it into something else. Why is it that the genealogy work for Jews is not done? When we're supposed to be gathering the Jews as well. You know, because they made, oh, like, let's have a Jerusalem center. Oh, we'll just, uh, we'll agree not to uh, do work among the Jews because we want to have this beautiful Jerusalem center in Jerusalem. And in order for us to build this thing here, we've got to do the thing, whatever. I don't even know. You compromise with Babylon when you've been commanded to come out of it. And so that that condemnation, which the church received in 1832 in Kirtland, which Benson, Elder Ezra Taft Benson, said that we were still under, we're still under. What are you going to do to come out from under the condemnation of God? But it's even worse than that. DMC section 124, Jesus said that he would reject the the church with their dead for being disobedient. They will reject the church with their dead for being disobedient. Now that's a principle, but he was specifically speaking of building the temple in Nauvoo, whereby the Father could come dwell there, and that he might restore that which was lost unto you, or that which was taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Sad fact for you. The Father never came to the temple. I know you've heard me over and over and over again talk about these things because I'm bringing it up and, you know, there's new people who listen all the time. I'm going to keep on pushing it. Because the fact of the matter is the Father never came to restore the fullness of the priesthood in the temple, which Jesus said he had to do. And that it must be done in a finished temple, not the red brick store, as Brigham Young tried to lie to you about. Jesus said he would reject the church, and he most certainly did. Every branch of the restoration was rejected. Every single one. And later on in that revelation, he says, and all they who hinder this work will be cursed to the third and fourth generation. Meaning... Once the curse was placed upon the church, which it was, and the church was rejected, it would not be reestablished until 160 years after the rejection and curse happened. That's what it means to the fourth generation. One generation in the wilderness with Moses leading around the children of Israel in the wilderness was one generation, which was 40 years. 60, or four generations is 160 years. So when Lyman White 
stood up in conference with Joseph Smith and said the church had been rejected in 1843. Guess what? The church was rejected. God allowed Joseph Smith to remain to wrap up a few things and give us some some further instruction. And then he was taken like Moses was taken from the Israelites before they went into the promised land. Except for it was a little bit different this time. They were in the promised land and God took the prophet away from them for their disobedience and they had to go wandering around in the wilderness, not for one generation this time, but for over 160 years or over four generations. But the 160-year time has passed. From 1843 until 2003, we were in condemnation and rejected as a church with our dead, and then God began to reveal truth and prepare for raising me up as a prophet. And in 2003, I had the Father lay his hands on my head to do the work of the ministry, to bring out the remnant of Zion and to build Zion so that it would be redeemed. Now, back then, I had no idea. In 95, when God told me I would be the last of the Lord's anointed or the last of the prophets, I was anti-Mormon Baptist. That was a, that was a year before I uh, met the missionaries and, and was converted. I didn't know what to do with that information. I was converted in 96 and 97. Like I said before, I received a patriarchal blessing where I was told that I have been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow, even the gift of eternal life. I received my endowments and I, and I went on a mission that year. After my mission, I went and as, I was a truck driver. I still am. I went on my mission in 97. I have been a missionary my whole life. Whether I was called or not, I've been a missionary my whole life. When I asked God what it meant to ha- that, that, you know, I have been given, not, not future tense, past tense, have. I, I asked how it's possible that somebody like me could have received this gift of eternal life. And all the Father would tell me is that it's not because of who you are, it's because of who you were. And I had no idea what that even meant. He said it was because of who you were before you came to this, this earth. But I kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. And in the spring of 2003... I think 19 years ago, like right now, 19 years ago, as I was pondering over these questions and asking God, what does it mean to have your calling and election made sure? And what does it mean that I've been given the gift of eternal life? I was taken up in the flesh and I saw the father and the son face to face. And I knelt before him and was sealed up to the Father, not to the Son, but through the Father to the Son. Because when you're sealed up to the Father, and he's sealed up to the host of heaven, I'm sealed up to all of those people that I heard singing praises to God when I knelt down and asked God 
if Joseph Smith was a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true, all those people I heard, I'm sealed to them. Because I'm sealed to the Father. And all who are sealed to the Father through the law of adoption, I'm sealed to them. For instance, Joseph Smith was sealed to Jesus Christ when he received his calling and election, made sure. I'm sealed to Joseph Smith. And the law of adoption is that for the days of Joseph Smith, people would be sealed to him, men, men and women, and that through Joseph Smith, they were sealed up into heaven. But Wilfred Woodruff did away with the law of adoption when he did away with all the other things in the 1890s. And uh, in 2003, when I was sealed up into the Father, I became the one man on the earth with the sealing keys that you could be sealed to, man or woman, to be sealed up to the Father, and to, uh, through the Father to the Son. And it is true that Joseph Smith came to lay the foundation for the redemption of Zion and that there has been a time of darkness where the church has been left to drift and wander and get rid and change and whitewash the instructions and ignore the instructions given to them. But the time is now present where God is calling his people to be obedient to his law that the remnant should be gathering in Emory County, Utah, where he has commanded me to come, and that when the destruction of Babylon the Great happens, that we will go to a safe place, which he has prepared for us to go to. And that just as it says in Isaiah chapter 35, where Zion should be, should, Zion should be uh, born in the desert, in the in the wilderness and that the remnant would be led in the highways of the top of the mountains and in the desert places that's here that starts in castle county utah and it goes south into the escalante and the time will come when we will come out of that wilderness and then we'll make our way back to independence which will be wiped clean I'm sorry if you are going there because you think that's where Zion is going to be redeemed. It is not going to be redeemed there. That is the future site of Zion. But that's not where it starts. Isaiah said it was born in the desert among the remnant who are few in number. And that as we are all obedient, God will give you the fullness of the priesthood like he gave it to me by the laying on of his own hands. Which is why Jesus Christ told him to build a temple where the Father could come restore the fullness of the priesthood because he wanted to restore so that Zion could be redeemed. It had never yet been restored. The Melchizedek priesthood, there are three orders of the Melchizedek priesthood, not two. Judas Guts will tell you otherwise. The last order of the Melchizedek priesthood is where you have had the priesthood given to you by one who has had it given to them, which prepares you to come into the presence of the Father, which you cannot do without having the first order of the Melchizedek priesthood. 
And the time will come when God will appear to you and he will lay his hands upon your head and you will receive the fullness of the priesthood which had not yet been restored to the church. But God wanted it to happen. That's why he gave him the revelation in 1841 to build a temple where the Father could come restore that which was lost unto you or that which was taken away because it was taken away from the world, even the fullness of the priesthood. The fullness of the priesthood is where you're given the power to control the elements and do a whole bunch of other really cool things, but it's all for the service of God and for the redemption of Zion. And because the church was not obedient, Zion was not redeemed, and we're here in the wilderness, which is exactly where Isaiah saw that we would be. If you're in Independence, or you're in Mississippi, or you're in Salt Lake City, or you're in Provo, Utah, you're in the wrong place. Because the gathering of Israel and the elect of God is Emory County, Utah, in Castle, Castle Country, Central Utah. This is where the gathering is. And that once Babylon the Great starts to completely collapse, the exodus will take us in the highways of the top of the mountains, which are directly to the west of me, and down into the desert places, to places where God has prepared for us to live while Babylon the Great is falling around us, while it was burning around us. So anyway, um, and like, I, you know, I, I have my witness, my wife, who's seen all of the things and talks about all of the things with me, and she's probably on the program right now. Of course, this is a recording, and I said I was about to be done, but... I've had other witnesses who my wife has seen and talked to. She's seen the people who have come that know that I am who I say I am, who have been baptized by me, who feel like they're inspired to go off and do something else for some reason. She knows who Joshua Sparks is, the man who saw the Father lay his hands on my head and is a witness of that. And it seems like she's the only witness that I have. Even though many others have been called. And many others know. But they don't stand up for the truth of Zion's redemption and for what they know to be true by the Spirit. Anyway, I think I'll get this uploaded and then i got to get to work, so... I just want to thank everyone who does listen to this program. I hope that you're learning from it, even if you don't yet know that I am who I proclaim to be. When I say these things in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, even Jesus the Christ, amen. I'm still recording.
That's my son. He wants me to take a picture of him on the camera, on his play camera. I guess say hi to the people. Can say hi to mom. Say hi, mom. Well, she can hear you on the recording. She'll listen to you later. All right, gotta go. Thanks. I can't, if Kim is not on and she is not listening to her son being so cute on the radio. Emmett, are you there? Emmett. Okay, I guess nobody's on. It says they're on on the studio. Wow, seriously? All right, well, let me see if I can figure out how to make this thing go. Hello? It's, it said I was muted for some reason. I don't know. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi. Where's Mom? Mom is sitting right behind me. Or standing. No, she's sitting. She's playing a game. Are you called in? Mom? No, she's not called in. She dropped off like 30 minutes ago. I and now she can't call back in. Well, that's great. And she didn't hear Aria saying, Hi, Mom. I know. What the heck? I was so cute. I know. All right, well, um, so we didn't have any callers call in, which is par for the course when, you know, whatever. Um... Uh, I will be doing a podcast, I'll drop a podcast tomorrow, but no live radio show. That's Friday, December, December. oh my gosh, May, no, what month is this? April, April 8th. So there won't be any program for, uh, other than the podcast drop, and that's just going to be a recording. And uh, we'll be back on Monday with Chapter 12 of the gift of tongues. So for those of you that listen, thank you for listening. And uh, Emma, is the studio open or do I have to wait for you to go open it? It's open. Good job. Is there anybody else in the call screening room where they said anything in chat? Uh, not in the call screening room. Reloading chat really quick. Uh, yeah, fundamentally Mormon said hello world. <laughs> yeah, I know you said that. Like, whatever. <laughs> okay. All right, well, uh, go ahead and play the cue the music, and uh, we'll be back, like I said, on Monday. And thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. God bless, and goodbye. Cue the music. <laughs>